and welcome to MedTech Monthly, a brand new podcast series from MedTech Insight. I'm MedTech Insight Executive Editor Sean Schmidt. I'm honored to be the first guest host of this experimental podcast. We thought long and hard here at MedTech Insight about the format of this new show, and we finally decided that it should be an anything-goes type podcast, one that's different in tone, topic, and format from episode to episode. While for our first show, we're having a freewheeling conversation with the US FDA's Cisco Vicente and former FDA official Steve Silverman about quality versus compliance, next month it could be, say, a top 10 list of cybersecurity tips or a deep dive look at a specific medtech manufacturer. Nothing is off limits. So with that bit of housekeeping out of the way, let's start the show. Let's do some quick introductions. If you're a regulatory or quality professional in the medtech space, then you surely know Cisco Vicente, who's the program manager for the Food and Drug Administration's Case for Quality within its Center for Devices and Radiological Health, or CDRH. You've been with the agency almost 11 years now, so I guess that makes you one of the more senior officials. Yeah, thanks, John, for having me here. Um, And it's tough to say that that's a senior official there. (laughs) Also, here is Steve Silverman, and again, this is someone who needs little introduction. Steve was the compliance director for CDRH a few years back, and now he's head of the Silverman Group, a consultancy for the medical device industry. Thanks for being here, too, Steve. Thanks very much, Sean. It's a pleasure to be with you and with Cisco. Let's start by asking each of you to define quality and compliance. Cisco, why don't you go first? Oh, okay. So this is always a nice, tough one um, because the center, the agency, even in our regulations, we have a definition for quality, right? We start out with the idea that, you know, and I'm just going to book definition of it, you know, the, the totality of features, characteristics that bear on the ability of a device to satisfy fitness for use, including safety and performance. And that's reg. Um, but you know, one of the things that we've been really trying to tackle with all of this uh, effort and our case for quality focus is the idea of quality being something more than just that definition. Mm-hmm. It's a philosophy, right, of, uh, you know, continuously pursuing excellence and value uh, for of repeatability, reliability, you know, the idea of satisfying and exceeding fitness for use. But as experienced by the customer, the user, and in our cases, you know, the patient or the public in general, um, you know, compliance, on the other hand, you know, it's there isn't a regulatory definition around compliance. Uh, the best that we've done and we've had something, you know, exercise like this internally is talk about compliance in terms of its book, de- its extra dictionary def- definition, you know, in conformity to fulfilling official requirements. Right. It, it is an operating state. It demonstrates that um, an organization is repeatedly and ongoing um, and in an ongoing state of fulfillment of those established requirements, whether they be official ones from reg or something that they've established themselves. So those two definitions are, you know, you could go by what is in the actual uh, meaning and the book definition of the words, but part of what we want to try to get to with all this is let's go back and think about what the intent and philosophy around them are. Okay, Steve, you're up next. I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about specific definitions because I think that Cisco did a great job of laying out the definitions comprehensively. I want to focus instead on what I think a challenge is, which is to say this. I think we can pretty quickly come up with a working definition of compliance, right? It's compliance with various regulatory regulations. And in our case, most of the regulations relate to post-market quality requirements or post-market regulatory requirements, I should say. Quality is trickier. I mean, on the one hand, we can use the comprehensive, but maybe not completely applicable example that Cisco provided, the somewhat higher level example. Um, But I think as Cisco indicated, we're talking about quality in a different sense here, which is quality as a state beyond compliance. That is 
quality in a way that really maximizes the way that a device performs to meet the device's intended purpose and the patient needs in the, in the best way possible. And I think within the context of the case for quality, one of the areas where we get hung up a little bit is explaining what exactly quality is in that context. And I don't think that we have yet absolutely cracked that particular nut. I don't think that there is a widely shared, commonly accepted definition of what quality is and how it's different than compliance. I think that we need to, and we are making progress toward that definition, but we're not there yet. Yeah. So if I've got uh, just a quick opportunity to add something to what um, you know, Steve just uh, responded with, because he mentioned something that I think is um, critically important to note, and it'll probably feed into some of the discussion we have throughout today, the idea of the regulatory compliance, right, and that aspect of things. Um, the expectation that you know, in this space and what we're talking about oftentimes with compliance is about that need to meet a um, more of a legal uh, requirement, you know, versus the idea of compliance as a an operating state. And the reason I, I wanted to make sure that we highlight a little bit of that and, you know, just keep it in perspective when we have some of the rest of the conversation today is that it's important to to recognize that there's a difference between a compliance as a legal expectation and compliance as a aspect of quality, which is, you know, part of where the idea of quality and compliance really merge. Um, you know, in in a lot of practice, when we talk about compliance as an operating state, it's a critical function for achieving quality, right? The idea of reliably and repeatedly satisfying fitness for use, you can't do that without first establishing some stable requirements, you know, and then demonstrating that you are in a state of control in fulfilling those requirements. That's what compliance does and demonstrates that sustained operating state. Um, you know, we talk about quality as the broader philosophy uh, and that pursuit of excellence, you're always looking to then take that controlled operating state and push it in ways that achieve better outcomes, improve outcomes, things that will continue to meet the evolving customer need, uh, their continued to evolve of, uh, expectations, um, delivering more value, reliability, and innovating, right, to be able to address all that space. So there's this bit of a, a push-pull where the idea of pursuing excellence and quality um, really moves beyond what is your stable uh, controlled operating state and then becomes a new operating state and then kind of compliance takes over again. It becomes this this cycle um, over and over again. So, you know, when we talk about a lot of our conversation today, we've got to keep in mind that there is that role that compliance plays and then there's this expectation around regulatory and legal compliance. You know, Cisco, I want to go back to something you said when you were giving that quality definition. You mentioned the concept of quality um, for constant improvement, which is an ISO standards concept, right? Did you sort of borrow that, you know, constant improvement concept from, from ISO? No, that idea of quality and continuous improvement on that has always been, you know, ever since Deming <laughs> really came mm. up with the concept and concept. Okay. Um, I'd argue the other way around, right? ISO just codified <laughs> it in standard. Okay. So second part to the question about the definitions of quality and compliance, and that is, you know, maybe tell us where the two definitions sort of meet and where they sort of diverge. And Cisco, why don't we go with you first again? Yeah, sure thing. I think the, um, as I was trying to to make the case for beforehand, the idea of them meeting is at that point of creating a sustained and controlled state. Right? Compliance is that 
that demonstration that you're in a state of control. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the legal requirements spell out some of these uh, foundational pieces that need to be in place. But any organization that is, um, you know, doesn't matter if it's using the medical device regulations, the ISO standard, if it's using uh, even uh, nice ISO 9001, right? It's all about repeatability and controlled processes. You try to sustain that and you make your organization follow and demonstrate that they're um, fulfilling the requirements of those processes. That's compliance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, quality then takes and says, okay, we're doing this. It's effective, but we need to do this better. How do we do that? How do we challenge this process to make it uh, more efficient, more effective, and um, more reliable for what we need to deliver for our customers? So that's where you see the the bit of the divergence in the discussion, right? One is looking to stabilize and lock things down. The other one is looking to kind of push the bound on what can be done. And they should always be in a constant um, push-pull dynamic. And Steve... Same question to you. Where do the definitions sort of meet and diverge? I really like very much what Cisco has been talking about. And so I want to try to come at it from a slightly different perspective and ask Cisco whether my formulation makes sense and is consistent with his points, which is to say, look, We can talk about regulatory compliance, and regulatory compliance really means meeting multiple regulatory requirements that exist. For our purposes, they apply predominantly to post-market activities. Some of them may actually meaningfully improve device outcomes. Others may really be requirements on paper but in practice may not be that beneficial. I don't think that anybody wants to focus very much on that level of regulatory compliance. Cisco, what I hear you talking about and what I really think is interesting is something different, which is to say, okay, now let's highlight those compliance activities where even if they are orientated towards creating a steady state in terms of device production, okay, we know from experience that they're really important. They have a meaningful impact on device performance and they optimize patient outcomes. So we're going to start by zeroing in on those compliance requirements. And those are the ones, the subset that we are going to focus on. And then in some contexts, we ask, okay, what can we do to even go beyond what is the steady state to reach better states of performance? Those are quality improvements. That makes sense to me. Um, it, It seems to me, I still think that the conception of regulatory compliance versus meaningful compliance versus quality, those those differentiations I don't think represent widely held views. Um, but I'd be really interested in hearing from Cisco actually to find out if whether what I'm saying tracks with his thinking, and if he also thinks that my statement that. We're still kind of lacking a lot of common ground around what we are talking about has merit. So I think uh, in, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to agree with you in, in both contexts, right? You, what you've mentioned does track with what I, I was trying to, to make sure I got across there a lot more, uh, I think succinctly that I managed to say it at, but the um, other piece of that though, the, I think I like the notion that you just made. There's three uh, things at play here, right? There's that quality as a, it is an improvement aspect. There is that um, idea of compliance as that, uh, you know, steady state critically important. And then there is the idea of the, um, you know, the, the legal requirement, which is where, for the you know last four decades around the medical device area, we've we've played in that area, and um, that's kind of where people have gotten stuck, and that's where we want to uh, really make strides in understanding and clarifying 
um, definitions, expectations around them and become more aligned as to what we're talking about in each of those areas so that uh, we're all speaking the same language. Because I do think 100 um, percent there is a either a confounding confusion or a a just lack of um, distinction between them that happens in the industry now that I think is not really beneficial or delivering the outcomes that we're looking for. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree completely. If I could just add one more quick point, Sean, we're, we're not doing anybody any favors by misunderstanding what compliance means and not being very specific in what we're talking about when we make reference to compliance. So, Sean, I know that you have jokingly, but actually there's some truth to it, said that the device industry kind of collectively rules its eyes when they talk about compliance mm-hmm. um, because there's a lot of it that's just very frustrating and confusing. And that's a true thing. And I think it happens even outside of the device industry. And again, I think that one of the problems is a lack of confidence that the compliance discussion relates to what Cisco is talking about when he highlights those practices that really are critical to establish and to be able to reproduce in a steady state. And then from among those critical compliance practices to figure out where there's an opportunity for gains. And yeah, use quality to push for gains. Of course, that's a critical North Star, but start from a meaningful definition of compliance so that nobody feels like it's just a paper exercise. Yeah, actually, I like that idea. yeah, this is probably going to get me in trouble in one way, shape, or form, but it's true. <laughs> the concept is true. Um, you know, we want to break that mindset of thinking of compliance as a paper exercise, right? The idea of firms rolling their eyes or what they don't like, it's usually in response to that perception and that feeling, right? Most of them do compliance the the way it's needed to to better produce their product, right? It's that when, when it becomes that perception of it turning into that that um, I, I lack of a better word is that uh, you know that day-to-day bureaucratic overhead that they've got to address and you know and 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 actually one of the things that I think is really great um, about the case for quality program is that it has created um, individual projects like the like the VIP initiative, that allow device makers to work with outside experts to identify practices that really tie to core manufacturing, design and manufacturing requirements. And so it seems to me a, a good example of creating space for people who are directly involved in designing and producing medical devices to think about and highlight what's really important and to find ways to do it better. That's a that's a that's a big success. And that's at at odds, right, with the traditional model of, for example, agency regulators coming in and checking to see if there is compliance with a set of requirements that are written down on paper that don't necessarily have a high level of confidence um, that they will produce a really positive outcome. So Cisco, uh, Steve argues that there's no widely accepted definition of quality. Do you agree with that? So let me actually flip that one a little bit and say, um, you know, when we talk about a, again, book definition of quality, there's a million of them out there, but they all basically are comprised of the same construct and concept. Um, That idea of, you know, what is entirely involved from, you know, practice to procedures to processes to features, elements, stuff that's actually built into the product to deliver or exceed a customer's expectations. Everywhere, every single definition will get you that piece of it. So the idea of it um, not being widely accepted in terms of definition um, isn't necessarily the the way I look at it. I, I actually think there's a million definitions that all say the same thing. Um, the piece of this that is 
uh, difficult when you flip on it is that there isn't a widely accepted or standardized set of customer expectations, right? That idea of what that final outcome that is um, the definition of quality or what quality is intended to produce mm-hmm. um, is very much in the eye of the beholder because it's about that customer piece of it. And that's where the the target starts to really move drastically. Steve, do you wanna add to that? Yeah, I mean, Cisco knows more about quality when he's asleep than I know at any point when I'm awake. <laughs> so, I mean, if, if he says that it's a well-defined term, he's right, and I'm not. Um, what I will say in, in a kind of a feeble attempt um, to cover my earlier comments is this. Okay, yes, widely defined concept. And there are a lot of people who are saying basically the same things about quality um, when they refer to it. In the context of case for quality, as it relates to medical devices and imagining this state of design and production that goes beyond even meaningful compliance as a baseline, um, I think that we have a harder time identifying what is that succinct, widely shared definition. And just to add to one of Cisco's points, yeah, he's right. There needs to be some flexibility in that definition as it applies to case for quality, because what quality means in one context may not be applicable in another. And the kind of flexibility that we're describing accounts for both contexts. At the same time, I really do think that we need to push for a better understood, more commonly shared definition of quality in the case for quality context, because I think that we end up running in circles to a certain extent, trying to define the term, but not having it down succinctly. You know, it's not uh, not in terms of challenging that, but um, the idea or construct around the, you know, even within the case for quality space, defining quality, because we've gone for years, right, around that discussion and those concepts, it's always very difficult. But what you said earlier about what we can define the in terms of um, the understanding and expectations around what is meant by that, you know, regulatory compliance, that operating compliance and the improvement focus on things, that's much easier and actually much um, more relevant to define, I think, than to, to get stuck in the cycle of what do we mean by by quality? Um, and I think that there's a lot of value in that activity and exercise um, because it will provide the 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 big clarity I think that we need to get to right now to to move the needle on some things, um, but still allow us the flexibility or people to have the flexibility to focus on what is relevant for their customer for as a definition of quality. You know, Steve, you've been talking a lot lately, and you actually wrote an op-ed for MedTech Insight about making a case for compliance. You know, I guess if this was an 80s daytime soap opera, the case for compliance seems like it would be the case for quality's evil stepbrother that sweeps into town and spoils quality's plans. I'm guessing you disagree with that. So tell me how I'm wrong about that characterization, because let's be honest, manufacturers hate compliance. Um, Okay, so first and foremost, uh, kudos for the soap opera reference. I'm a big fan. Um, But I would characterize um, case for compliance not as the evil stepbrother, I opt instead for the identical twin separate at birth who comes up just <laughs> in time to donate a kidney and then coincidentally also performs a kidney transplant. Um, <laughs> an, an excellent, an excellent soap opera theme. Um, look, quality and compliance are not oppositional. They are complementary. And I think as Cisco and I have indicated, from our discussion, 
oftentimes they are integrated. Um, I, I don't want us to, to get back to our first discussion because I think that we talked about this point already and, and Cisco very effectively articulated a specific viewpoint, um, which is just to say that there, in my view, there is room for and benefit from more specifically and narrowly defining what quality means in the context of case for quality, and then also demonstrating what we're talking about when we make reference to compliance and how the two concepts interact with each other and actually serve each other. So, Cisco, what do you think about Steve's, you know, idea about having a case for compliance? So I think the um, with the idea of a, a case for compliance, um, what my hesitancy of here would be is that we jump back to a lot of the focus beforehand. I, I like Steve's uh, whole analogy there, not so much the evil twin, but the brother and a very convoluted <laughs> <laughs> rescue that he comes in to do. But um, the, uh, you know, the reality of the matter is that um, it's not so much a question of needing to make a case for compliance. Um, I think for decades now, the agency has made the case that there are requirements that fundamentally are critical to ensuring that you can have a safe and effective product. That's where the regs come from. Um, the focus of what we need to do is to get people to understand that, um, you know, there's more to what those regs uh, are than just what's written in in the in the you know code of federal regulations or in our A20 our 21 yeah that A20 is there that we've got or what's even in the ISO standards that's coming up right now right there is a a degree and intent behind that and that's what we need to to be able to get everybody back to um, you know. The, the evil twin that pops up in terms of the case for compliance. Yeah. Um, and that always brings up the picture of, you know, the Star Trek characters with their goatee <laughs> in my head. <laughs> um, it's it's that idea of the the focus going too far into the um, the letter of what's written in the regulation versus its execution and what an organization is executing at. Right. It's. It's being very much in the weeds of those day-to-day -day operations, and that creates a, a perception um, that honestly does give a, a negative effect for um, most companies who are engaged or involved. So I think the idea of sticking with the focus of making a case for quality and understanding that there is a significant role that compliance plays within that is uh, – um, I, I think a much better and uh, um, more effective option uh, moving forward. But, you know, I, I do recognize that we've not even really had a big fundamental discussion how important that idea of compliance is within that space. So I don't know who wants to take this one first, but, you know, are, are there some compliance requirements that are essential to good device outcomes? I think that actually, <laughs> I think it's critically important that Cisco answer the question first. <laughs> okay. Wow. So it, let me rephrase the, the question a little bit in, in its, the way it's being asked, because there is, um, in, in a sense, I'm going to agree and, and offer up a, a different context, though, to, to frame that in. Um, it's not a question of the you know, compliance requirements aren't good to device outcomes, right? There was a lot of thought put into how the uh, the quality system regulation was developed and established. Um, the they really do create a very good system of what are very primary functions and supporting functions that deliver those outcomes, right? So there are those. Uh, those critical requirements that directly affect a good device. And I'm going to give you examples like design controls, you know, the practices there, the requirements there, they're key to making sure you've thought through a functional design, production and process controls. That's where you really, um, you know, 
put the the pedal to the metal in terms of the manufacturing and um, what gets released. Um, but then there's other ones that are critical, you know, to support that. The you know the requirements for creating a a control system for your configuration of products, the um, the processes and procedures to go through that, um, you know, complaints and how they're intake. Uh, Kappa, even in itself. I know we think about it oftentimes as a primary system, but it is an essential support system um, for driving that uh, correction and removal practices. Um, All of them are supposed to come together and create a a functional operating system, and they're important, needed, and essential. The catch is, and the problem starts to happen when we lose sight of those requirements, focus on those words and what they're looking to deliver. And then we create a system that's more burdensome or drives behavior in the wrong direction. Um, And so, you know, losing sight of what these uh, requirements are intended to deliver, recognizing new ways or innovative ways of achieving those requirements, that's where we start to get a, a problem and we start to turn those, uh, those very well-intentioned requirements into rules on paper that really don't drive device performance. Steve? You know, Cisco's response is a really good one, and it's not helpful for me just to repeat his perspective using different words, and so I'm going to try to avoid that. I think that One interesting challenge associated with Cisco's point, and I don't know what the answer is, is is the following one, which is to say, when you've got a lot of different stakeholders inside and outside of FDA that take very, very different approaches to applying and evaluating regulatory compliance, then achieving the positive nuanced assessment that Cisco is describing is especially difficult. So, for example, you've got Cisco and his colleagues in CDRH who are very forward thinking in their perspectives, who are very attuned to thinking about different ways to achieve good outcomes for patients and device production and performance in a way that isn't tied mechanically to established regulatory requirements. And that makes sense. There are other parts of FDA, I think, that are involved in evaluating manufacturer performance from time to time that don't necessarily follow those more open-minded nuanced assessments of what makes sense in a given context to best serve patient outcomes and manufacturing and device design excellence. That's a problem, right? When, When their view is we have a set of requirements to enforce, and if we find a violation, we are going to note it without considering the larger context, that's an issue. And I think that that misalignment between some parts of the agency and the other exists. And then I think it becomes infinitely more complicated when you start talking about what happens outside of FDA. So if we're talking about, for example, the um, integration of the quality system requirements Um, with the ISO requirements, um, which is something that is very much under discussion right now. While there are different criteria and there are different entities that are evaluating um, compliance with those criteria, and unless there's an alignment between the way that those entities are looking at those requirements and the kinds of things that CDRH would like to see in terms of evaluation of manufacturing integrity, excuse me, manufacturing integrity and product performance, 
then that divide, I think, can be really problematic. Um, so with apologies for being very, very long-winded in my response, yes, the basic concept, as Cisco is describing it, is valid, and execution is rough. I, I'm going to actually wholeheartedly agree with you on that end, and that's the piece that we collectively always need to be keeping in perspective. And um, I will say this from in our standpoint as an agency, oh, we also need to be improving on. So, Steve, do you think that the case for quality does address compliance in some way? And if it doesn't, should it? I'm not sure how much it matters. And and I'll explain what I mean, Sean. I would love to get away from some of the terminology that we have been using and relying on and get more closely tied to some of the concepts that we have also been talking about um, at the same time that we have been using terms like compliance and quality. So um, let's, in my view, and I'm not sure if we can achieve this, but in my view, let's not tie ourselves in knots deciding whether compliance is sufficiently represented, although parenthetically, I think it's not. Um, and whether quality is a uniformly understood and shared concept, and focus more on the behaviors that we want those involved in device design, manufacture, and distribution to use to produce good outcomes, whether it's real attention to manufacturing practices that are integral to producing those outcomes, and it looks more like traditional compliance, or it's being attentive to new things that should be done over time because it will produce better results. So it's not fixed, more innovative, and seems to be more associated with quality. Okay, fine. But let's not be up nights trying to parse the difference. Let's focus on the underlying behaviors. Cisco, what do you think? So when you asked the question, I was ready to say and jump on board and say, yes, we've always had our eye on compliance, but I really like the way Steve worded that and what we really should be focusing on and discussing. Um, so I'm going to actually go with, with that answer and follow up on that one. Um, you know, we've always said that, you know, we've never wanted to drive people away from uh, the fundamental uh, elements of complying with uh with any of the engagements on case for quality, but um, you know, the idea of continuing that context and discussion just keeps creating these um, silos, divisions, or these these um, separated uh, elements or entities that, in reality, I think need to be um, just one integrated aspect. And what we all need to be focusing on is exactly that: how do we get to the behaviors we need to, we want, and we want to drive. You know, Cisco, I've heard for many years now at different case for quality events and, you know, other industry meetings that if manufacturers are just really, really, really good at quality, that compliance will just naturally follow. But do you think that maybe there's a danger in that thinking? And can maybe the proverbial pendulum swing too far in the direction of quality where maybe compliance is sort of left behind or an afterthought? Yeah, so I'm going to, and, you know, it's, it's oftentimes we, as an agency, uh, given that depends, but I don't think this is an depends. I really don't think that there is a danger in thinking that. Um, you know, I think as we discussed earlier, compliance is significantly integrated into achieving quality, so it cannot be left behind, right? If you, um, you know, as an organization are not, able to demonstrate that you're operating in that state of control um, with what you're established, you're never going to get uh, into the aspect of improvements or all the other components that we're talking about within um, the quality focus. The idea of, you know, quality in compliance naturally following is more rooted in I think addressing that second, that other part of your question, which is about the proverbial pendulum swing, mm -hmm. um, which 
is about being able to recognize that that's happening, right? Because I think that's where we start to see disconnects. When organizations are doing things, um, they've improved processes, they're demonstrating and effectively issuing and having more control, and it's it's visible, it's notable, it's, um, you know, we can see it in practice and action, and then we still stick to the idea of, but I don't see this documented procedure or I don't see this documented activity. Maybe end of the day, it's happening and it's no longer needed to be a separate document um, that we're looking for. So the pendulum swing will happen and that risk that I think a lot of companies might articulate, that regulatory uh, fear, um, will only uh, happen if we don't keep pace as an agency, as auditing organizations come into play um, with the innovations that are happening in achieving uh, fulfillment of those of those requirements. Um, so I think to that end, that's part of why we are so actively involved in the case for quality, right? Part of it is also our learning, our way, our method of keeping pace um, with what's happening so that we can adapt and evolve our regulatory expectations. Steve, do you think your questioning of why compliance isn't in the conversation mix more may be the opening of a wider industry conversation about it? Maybe the beginning of that pendulum swing back toward compliance? Yeah, you know, in terms of, forgive me, you know, ex-English major, I'm not in love with the pendulum swing metaphor because it suggests that whatever the pendulum is swinging away from is going to get left behind. And I just don't think that's the case here. I think if I were going to come up with my own metaphor, um, it would be a seesaw, right, or or scales, right? The idea that what you're really looking for is a balance um, between the two ideas, one being compliance, one being quality, and also an understanding of how the two influence each other and, as Cisco said, in some respects are really just dependent on each other. And so could it happen? Yeah, I mean, I I definitely think it could happen. Do I think it would be a good thing? No, I I think that it's it's an it's an unsophisticated perspective um, and it really to get to the better result um, requires an understanding of what the concepts really mean and how they work together and how they can benefit each other. So let's talk about device makers. You know, Steve, what are some gaps that you've maybe been seeing in device makers' understanding of quality? Sean, with apologies for continuing to beat a drum, uh, that I've already spent a lot of time hitting. Let me go back to some points that I've made before, which is to say there's a small subset, I think, of device makers who are either involved in the case for quality or who have spent a lot of time developing their understanding of quality as a place that is at minimum different than, if not complementary, to compliance And I don't think that's necessarily representative of the device industry broadly. As as you said, I think that there are many members of the device industry who don't really see a meaningful difference between quality and really, really good performance and who, as a practical matter, don't have the bandwidth or don't really see the benefit of trying to move past compliance to get to quality. And so that is a continuing challenge that the case for quality faces, in my opinion. It is my view, though, that the case for quality as an initiative has spent a lot of time thinking about the areas where it can engage and increase the familiarity of the device industry with case for quality initiatives and their 
engagement, their inter their interaction with those initiatives to produce better quality devices. One one example is just not always identifying quality as something that relates to a manufacturing practice and involves a determination of whether or not that practice is compliant or something more. There's there's some there there are case for quality initiatives that are related to, for example, better leveraging data that FDA aggregates in the ordinary course of its business to improve device performance um, that I think is extremely promising and exists independent of what other parts of FDA or what other regulators are doing with respect to compliance or quality. You know, Cisco, these manufacturer gaps in understanding what quality is about, does that mean that maybe there's a problem with the quality discussion? Should industry be talking about compliance more than it is? I think the, um, you know, even this discussion has kind of alluded to, there is an opportunity um, for a broader discussion about um that idea of quality and the notions around compliance, but I don't think it's only industry, right? What I think um, I just, you know, noted here in some of these places, we as a regulator and other regulators probably need to help be part of that discussion too and being proactive in creating and establishing what is clearly meant by all of that, and we expect with regards to compliance, something that is really about um, beyond what's just in the the letter of the law. So it'd be a beneficial opportunity to leverage a lot of these collaborative uh, forums that have been developed to um, to really foundationally have that conversation and say, hey, okay, this is what we mean and what we expect across the board, and try to get that. You know, I think Steve mentioned it beforehand, trying to get it out into the public domain as much as possible afterwards and get it to permeate is the the trick. How to get that, um, you know, into the hands of all the companies out there who very much been accustomed to doing things one way for a long time and it's been effective for them. One benefit of getting away from this whole quality versus compliance dichotomy is the idea that for all of those device companies that are just going to say at the end of the day, for whatever reason, we are not going to lean into quality at this point. It would be nice to be able to respond. Fine. If that's your decision, then that's your decision. But you have a regulatory obligation to be compliant. So let's talk to you about what good compliance looks like. And in that conversation, irrespective of the good compliance terminology, we are still getting at practices, behaviors, strategies that drive outcomes that are not terribly different than the kinds of outcomes we would want to see if we were using quality terminology. You know, actually, that's not a bad methodology consideration and approach, because there are companies who will They'll view one as an extra added burden from our regulator, which isn't where we want them to be, right? Um, because if they view it that way, it's not going to be done in the in the way that is effective for them or for patients. But you know, there's nothing wrong with having that discussion on how to make an organization better fulfill those requirements. Right. Cisco, surely you're aware of device firms that understand the differences between compliance and quality. Can you? Talk about those companies a bit. Why do you think they get it? In a lot of the cases where I've seen companies that get it, I mean, truly get it, um, you see, I think, what is the outcome of a lot of the discussions we've had here up until now, right? The idea that compliance, quality, and the rest of the organizations are no longer these distinct roles, right? They've started to bring in the functions of compliance Um, more effectively into the quality organization or into other parts of the organization as they're operating. And that, you know, that function at the company is no longer the, (laughs) 
no longer in the role of just saying no, which is oftentimes where I hear, uh, you know, feedback or parts of other parts of the organization, their perspective is on compliance, right? They are the police inside of the company. They are the ones who tell them no to anything that they want to do. Um, once the flip changes, right, where the organization recognizes that the people and the functions that are operating in that compliance uh, aspect in that compliance role are part of delivering a better outcome and a better product. And they take on the function of continuous improvement, right? How do they make it easier, more um, effective for the rest of the organization to succeed in meeting those requirements? Those companies that have made that flip and have been better integrated around that, they're the ones who continue to really evolve or show a, a very um, you know, positive track record overall, even within the uh, compliance performance and their compliance history. Are these firms case for quality participants? Um, is that why they understand the difference between compliance and quality? Or am I giving the case for quality a bit too much credit here? <laughs> There's a bit of a, a, a chicken and egg scenario going on with that one. Um, you know, I don't want to say that the case for quality and what it's doing doesn't deserve credit in some cases, but I also don't want to um, negate the fact that there have been companies who got that from the very beginning and they participated in case for quality because they got it and it made sense. Um, so, you know, there are, a, you know, actually, huh, I'll probably say that several of the firms that we know that got it from the beginning, they're they're participating in case for quality. But there's a lot of the other firms who um, kind of understood the construct and the concept, started down that journey and wanted the additional guidance and support that comes out of the progress within case for quality to help set the direction and make sure that they were on track. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we've got firms who very compliant, effective in their compliance, started in the case for quality efforts, and then started recognizing that there's a better way to drive and build that integration and have leveraged the programs there to build it up. Uh, so it's not a, um, a, a question of, you know, the, the case for quality being responsible, because you can do this without it. Um, it is just the idea that case for quality is one additional tool, and that's something that we wanted to build, you know, collectively and collaboratively to make sure that it was effective. Um, but it's only going to be as effective as whatever the organization participating chooses to leverage it as. Okay, so Steve and Cisco, same question for both of you. Are there times when a quality focus doesn't make sense? That is, when is a compliance focus enough? I'd I'd like to raise my hand um, <laughs> to respond first, um, and I'm just going to jump in. There are definitely, in my opinion, times when compliance is enough. What I mean is that the whole regulatory structure that FDA and other regulators use is predicated on compliance. So yes, it's enough if you're compliant. You are meeting the requirements that have been designated, and that is one of the costs of doing business. Should that be the endpoint, in my opinion? No. And there is a huge gap that's created when the conversation is limited to compliance because you are missing from that conversation consideration of all of the other things that are absolutely, excuse me, absolutely applicable to positive, high-impact device outcomes, but that may not be captured solely within the framework of compliance. So, yeah, I'm going to absolutely agree um, that there is a, a time and place where compliance is enough. Steve's articulated some even earlier examples also where it, it is sufficient in how you approach things and think about it. But, you know, there's even more practical examples if you need them, the idea of a company who is just starting out. Um, you, know, you just want to even get to the point of meeting those foundational requirements because they've already got a track record that says 
these will more than likely assure a safe and effective device. And again, even with that sense, you could do everything right and still have a product that um, you know doesn't meet all all those requirements. So it's just a higher probability of it happening within that context. When you know organizations have actually reached a high level of performance uh, or maturity for that product, you. There's no more value in trying to push it further from an improvement standpoint, and compliance is probably enough. So there is, you know, this understanding that it, you don't have to always drive for the improvement or the innovation. You can just meet the requirements. And as Steve mentioned, from a regulatory standpoint, that's what we're going to hold people accountable to. Now, part of all this and part of what we've been trying to do as we're making the case for quality is that it makes a significant amount of business sense to not just stop there. <laughs> um, but, you know, from a regulatory agency standpoint, we're not um, we're not going to hold you accountable to that business piece. We'll let the markets deal with that afterwards. Right. If you choose to stay in just a compliant phase and your competitors decide to improve, I think that has a way of balancing itself out in the marketplace. You know, I'm listening to Cisco talk, and what I'm thinking about is that this huge gap, I think, around quality exists between devices and other industries like automobile or aviation. There's not a car company in the world that is like Yugo may have used this strategy back in the 80s, but that's the only company that says, buy us, we're compliant with regulatory requirements. <laughs> Everybody out there who is marketing their product, their car, is saying, we produce a top quality product. We are better than our competitors in producing a great, high quality automobile. And that kind of differentiation and drive towards quality as a meaningful point beyond simply regulatory compliance doesn't exist in the same way for medical devices. And honestly... I think that it's a a detriment that it doesn't, right? Because the idea of what they've been able to achieve in the uh, automotive space doing that, where um, all these ideas and concepts that you'd consider are high quality, high functioning, um, they deliver a safer product in terms of the automobile or a more effective product. Um, that's element and that focus of things has created a situation where they are just the norm, the expectation that people have of the product. And that's, I think, where we need to and want to be with the medical uh, devices, right? We don't want that <laughs> that level of uh, uh, variation, right? And right now, in essence, you can go out and it doesn't matter which car you get, you can guarantee they're going to you know, warranty them for about 10 years, and those drivetrains will probably last you about 10 years. You know, you'll, you'll get a lot of standardized expectations around things. So one last question, and it's for both of you. What does the device world look like without a case for quality? It's a bleak, desolate, <laughs> ruled by half-animal, half-human creatures that eat their own. Um, and that, that, that's not perspective. That's just science. Yeah. <laughs> I actually don't think can I can top that. <laughs> the idea of honestly where we were when all this started um, and the rate of change and the pace of change for the medical device industry. You mentioned that beforehand, the new digital tools. We would have hit a wall where we needed to consider something different no matter what. So I think um, it would have been longer in the making. I think building the trust at that point in time would have been um, harder, but we would have had to get to the point of something like a case for quality uh, down the road, simply because everything is unsustainable without uh, that shift or rethinking things. I have had more than enough of an opportunity to speak. I've recently wasted it on stupid, self-satisfying comments. I defer to Cisco's good judgment. And 
Okay. I do like the bleak landscape idea better, though. It does paint the visual well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, with that, we'll close out this first episode of MedTech Monthly. This was an awesome discussion and super insightful. It's going to do a lot to really educate industry on, you know, not just what the case for quality is, but, you know, just quality and compliance in general. So thanks to both of you for taking the time to be with me today. It was very much my pleasure. Same here. And thank you, Sean, for the opportunity. And Steve, always great to have the discussion. Back at you. And thank you at home, the office, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can find our full suite of podcasts online now at medtechinsight.com, including our Speaking of MedTech podcast that I co-host with Steve. You can also find our podcasts on all major platforms. And remember, you can find us on Twitter at medtech underscore insight. For now, thanks for listening.